0: Hello and welcome to A Mental Breakdown, where we take a break from reality to talk about sports. I'm Bryce, that's Liam. We don't have a whole lot of time to introduce because we've got a lot to talk about today.
1: Yeah, we got a lot to talk about, especially after uh, the big result last weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, uh,
0: you're St. Louis, no, I'm sorry, LA Rams. Hey, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> my boys, my boys turned up. Actually, Stafford turned up. I- I- everything that I-, I thought might go wrong didn't go wrong, so... I'm still kind of riding that wave of happiness, to be honest, Bryce.
0: So I just want to point out, I was basically completely right in all of my predictions.
1: You were scarily right as well. <laughs> it's quite disappointing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Joe Burrow, second-year quarterback, like I talked about, being scary and that team kind of being, having a chance to do some damage because of that. And the fact that he has no baggage. Uh, Matthew Stafford returning to form because that's the only thing that matters is how you played through the regu- the, your actual average numbers. And what do you know? He returns to
1: form. Yeah, you kind of, um, you were kind of bigger on the Rams making the Super Bowl than me, to be honest, I think.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes that's because you don't want to get your hopes up. Like right now um, in college basketball, I'm a Purdue fan and this is the best team we've probably ever had. But because Purdue fans are so used to just miserable luck and awful results and just the worst things happening to us, none of us want to actually predict that we're going to do well. Like we just were like, okay, let's just get in there. We all think we're going to lose early, but it's okay just because we don't want to jinx
1: it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I think jinx is the big word, isn't it? You don't want to kind of say, we're, we're doing this. and then uh, you Yeah,
0: because the other thing is, the other thing is you don't want to be too confident with your friends, because then your friends are going to roast you.
1: Oh, I've made that mistake before.
0: Yeah, you really don't want to get too confident. You want to make sure you temper those experts. Like every time I'm with friends or whatever, and I'm talking about any of this stuff, I try and be as pragmatic as possible so I don't get roasted when everything goes wrong.
1: <laughs> well, one of our mutual friends in our fantasy leagues, I think technically he's a 49ers fan. Um... And so, obviously, during that week 18 game when we went 17 nil up, I was giving them a lot no. of, a lot of stick, saying see, you, like, see <laughs> you next year sort of thing. Can't wait to not play you, and then obviously fast forward five weeks and we kind of squeaked past them in the, uh, in the championship game. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be doing that again anyway.
0: Yeah. So what are your big takeaways from the Super Bowl? Obviously, you were super salty about the missed call,
1: <laughs> like yeah. ultra salty. I mean, c- can you blame me? Um, I think. My big takeaways were that as soon as um, as soon as Odell Beckham went down, I, I feel like we got performances or at least big moments from quite a lot of the the smaller players on the team. You know, some of the players who we drafted maybe late in rounds or who are quite far down the depth chart. So let's say our tight end, Bryson Hopkins. I think he's fifth on the depth chart. And uh, yeah, I was gonna mention him because he
0: went to Purdue. Shout out, my boy! Oh, Bryson I didn't know. Hopkins. Actually, huge. Yeah.
1: Um. Because he uh, he got something like fifty six receiving yards and four receptions, and he also got a massively important block on a four from one with a couple of minutes to go. Um, yeah. So he 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 rocked up. I know Skronic dropped one for an interception, but I think he got eighteen yards or so, um, or a turner kind of got some quite important yards back. So it was interesting to kind of see some like it like I said some of those smaller kind of people turning up, but then also that combination of Stafford and Cup is just yeah I. I I, I shouldn't have been worried heading into this because Stafford is the clutch man, isn't he? He's the he's got the most what fourth uh, fourth quarter comebacks of any quarterback in what twelve years, fifteen years or so, yeah, uh, no, something like that. So I shouldn't have been worried about him like turning up in the big pressure games. Um, but obviously those interceptions kind of towards the end of the the regular season got me worried. But no, him and Cup, it was it was kind of. It, it was super kind of uh, super exciting to see that kind of relationship and that winning drive because it, it was almost like it got to a point where you just didn't think they could be stopped at all. Do you know, as soon as that two, three consecutive catches go, you're thinking, here we go, like you're full of confidence. So, so yeah, I think it was that combination of our star players turning up but also being kind of helped by those by those smaller kind of names that, that was pretty big for us.
0: Yeah, you make a good point about that, about little guys stepping up, but in the end, it was still...
1: Aaron Donald and Cooper Cup winning the game for you, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, that second half, it was it was amazing to kind of see Aaron Donald um take over the game. I just saw I I was just reading on Twitter actually just then, um, Donald would explain in that I think he uh, he shoved Burrow and it was just while Burrow was um inbound, and I think the the uh, the Bengals player started chatting and getting in his face, and he and I think he basically just said, you know, as soon as that happened, I wanted to show them, you know, like who does a real talk in there. And I think he, from that point onwards, he just seemed to take over the game. Um, so it does help when you have someone who's the greatest in his position, for sure.
0: Truly, yeah, a truly dominant player who really wanted it in that moment. Yeah. So yeah, I guess we just have to say, congrats to you, you know? You suffered through so many bad years when they were in <laughs> St. Louis, and now you get to celebrate, and that's wonderful.
1: You know what? I'm, I, I, I can't even claim that I suffered through the last Super Bowl loss because I watched it, but I wasn't really kind of like following... Uh, the NFL back back then, so it didn't really prove. I know, I know.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm sorry.
0: but now we're on,
1: we're on to the Six Nations.
0: Yes, yes. Um, it's it's been one of my favorite times
1: a year. It's been an interesting start to Six Nations, hasn't it?
0: It has. It's. It, I think it was kind of predictably going to be like this, extremely wide open. I mean, there are five legitimate contenders that can win it, so it's extremely fun.
1: Yeah, predictably unpredictable is is the Six Nations in a nutshell, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it it really, I think, is going to come down to who has the better home versus away fixtures, right? So, like, we have three away versus two home, Scotland do, and I think that's going to be really tough. Because we also, one of the away matches now is Ireland on the last day, and (laughs) we could end up, that match being, like, the decider for the Six Nations, so.
1: I think, um, for Scotland's hopes, at least, I think it all comes down to this weekend, to be honest. You beat France at home, then that Italy game should really be a given. And then you never know, because um, Ireland obviously lost to France. So every team kind of up until that last game of the season could have just lost once, Joe, in terms of France, uh, France, even England and Ireland. So it, it could really be a tight finish. I mean, I say this now, we'll probably end up losing to France and France will run away with it. But um, it's it always seems to be like this. I think that's the... That's the, the real kind of interest of the competition, how uh, Italy, aside how competitive it can get. Um, have you seen the, the recent stories or the recent leaks about South Africa potentially replacing Italy in the Six Nations? Uh, that's nonsense. I'm not so sure.
0: First of all, Italy... No, I, it's 100% nonsense. First, Italy have the right to refusal. They can literally
1: just say, no, we're not leaving. Do, don't they technically only have like... um a vote though doesn't like does it have to be unanimous or does it can it just be a majority vote because i know is it the big i can't remember what the company are called but the bit, the money that that has come in do you know yeah um i know they're probably keen to try and get that south african audience in so i don't know whether it comes right. down to if it suits the others would they vote against italy
0: no, uh, well, they might, but I don't think it matters. From what I've been, from what I understand, Italy literally have the ability to just say no, okay. they're not leaving and can stay in it. Okay. From what I understand, I
1: think personally, I, that
0: could be wrong. I'm not like super educated on it, but I just think it's classic English media being dumb, not paying attention because Italy is actually a lot better than they've been in the past. Oh, and I think it'd be a travesty. I think it'd be a travesty. It's yeah, it would be terrible. Not only that, but. Replacing with South Africa changes the whole travel schedule, right? Like, part of the reason the Six Nations works the way it does is because you can travel within to Italy and back to the see, home nations very easily. Mm-hmm. See, I- That's why the discussions before were, like, replacing Italy with, like, Georgia. But the thing is, Italy's miles better than Georgia, so that didn't make sense either.
1: That's true. I think they played each other recently, or, like, in the in the last couple of years, and it was pretty good. Well,
0: it's just – it's one of those things where rugby is a sport where the top end is so much better than everyone else that, like, the Tier 1 versus Tier 2 seems like it's miles different. But then Tier 2 is miles better than Tier 3 where you find Germany and Spain and Georgia and stuff like that and Canada. Like, those kind of countries are just not even close to that Tier 2, but – Everyone at think like, oh, they surely somebody's better. No, they're not.
1: Italy's actually still the best team available. The interest other than thing, the other tier one nations. Someone pointed out to me the other day, Bryce, that um I think think it's Italy under twenties have actually started getting quite a few wins in their kind of version of They just beat England. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just beat England. I think that's not um that's not a one off. I think they've been, you know, doing no. pretty well the last few years. So um yeah, like I said, it would be a travesty if you can kind of see this development of Italy kind of coming forwards and, and it's suddenly kind of shunted in a couple of years. So fingers crossed that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, and this is a perfect time to talk about what our actual subject tonight is, today, whatever you're listening to this is, is that we're going to talk about team culture because what's happening is that Italy is transitioning to a forward-focusing team culture where they're focused on trying to develop a winning side, which is what Scotland went through, you know, a decade ago. So they're just doing that step now rather than a decade ago. That's it. And I I think it's only a matter of time before Italy really does join the Tier 1 nations because they're not that far away. They're the best Tier 2 by
1: a mile. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very hard to almost turn a, a country's fortunes around, isn't it? Because there's so much... Um, so much going on in international management. You know, your players aren't playing for the same clubs. um, So all kind of playing for different styles. And and when they come together, it's about trying to foster that sense of belonging to that one group, isn't it? And it's quite hard to not only develop that relationship between players um, kind of off the field, but also on the field as well. So it seems like, like you say, Italy is slowly potentially turning the tide. Um, But have you got any opinions on why that is, Bryce? On why they're turning the tide? Yeah, yeah. Why, why do you think kind of that culture is kind of coming to the fore now rather than five, ten years ago? Well,
0: uh, I'm not an expert in rugby or history or the development of talent in rugby. But what I can say is that uh, you've been you were talking about like how hard it is to develop that kind of thing. It's mostly because Scott, rugby is such a niche sport outside of those home nations and then like those south uh, southern hemisphere nations. Rugby is a tiny sport. That means there's like 10 countries in the world that focus on it primarily, right? And that's so small compared to every other major sport like football in the world. So that's why it becomes difficult for countries like that to actually develop. But then uh, I think I don't know what Italy's doing. Like I don't know their background. I don't know any of that history. So I'm not really the expert. But Squidge Rugby has a bunch of great videos where he talks about Italy's development and how they're focusing on uh, new coaching, new staff. Uh, They're focusing on youth development. They're not going back and playing the same players over and over and over again. They're bringing, they're blooding in young players like Paolo Garbisi rather than trying to hold on and
1: hope they work. Yeah. It it seems to be kind of fundamental changes all the way through the kind of rugby union setup, doesn't it? Rather than just uh, something short term to try and get more success in the short term, the Six Nations, it seems to be that it's kind of paying off that kind of focus on the the bigger picture for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the direction. It's kind of similar to what Scotland did where they focused for a little bit. Scotland still doesn't focus on the youth as well as they should, which I think we could talk about that. And we could talk about Wales having a similar issue where they have a very aging golden generation getting ready to start retiring. And I don't know who their replacements are. And from what I understand is their county level or whatever they call it,
1: level rugby is not good. I think, I think Scotland and Wales have the same kind of problem in terms of the amount of players playing... Um, age group rugby on a Saturday isn't that high? I think I saw a figure from a few years ago from Scotland. It was around only seven thousand people. Seven thousand men were playing Joe you know, on a Saturday, which is a crazy small pool compared to your likes of you know France, your likes of England. Um, and so it's interesting that you know when you get that golden generation of talent like Wales have with Liam Williams, uh, Alan wynne Jones, Jonathan Davis, it's how you create that culture to keep on uh to keep on developing them and keep on producing them because um one of the greatest sides in the world New Zealand have managed to do that kind of from that same kind of problem of small small populations small kind of pools and it's about trying to find that way isn't it to to kind of get that winning nature all the way through your youth teams and and grow grow people up on kind of success and on and on kind of a, a good way of playing um and i think yeah scotland and wales seem to and uh, scotland at least it, it, it's interesting to see scotland right now have that kind of right now have the current golden generation didn't it? um they seem to have done everything right over the past 5 years to to get to where they are um whereas wales seem to had that happen 5 years ago and i i i personally don't see the tide turning yet but um this is me saying this after wales did beat scotland which is quite disappointing but um but yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see what does happen over the next few years and where kind of the the fortunes of both nations head
0: let's be real the scotland wales result is partly cuz wales were good and um dan bigger played a fantastic match but scotland had plenty of opportunities at 17 17 to win and they just literally choked it away just dumb decisions fundamental mistakes like being tackled and simply knocking it on in a tackle like it that happened probably six times over the course of the match and like three of them in the final 10 minutes and so it was uh, while yeah they were the better team it wasn't like you know they were demonstrably dominatingly better right it wasn't like the way ireland
1: did to them true but i guess that's that's wales in a nutshell over the last few years isn't it they kind of find, find a way to stay in games and then somehow come the right way that's how they won six nations last time yeah, very jammy, very jammy side. Yeah, I, red card and yellow cards. Their I was going to say, I don't want to mention that they've got cards in pretty much every game, but <laughs> yes, I'm salty.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and it's but it's one of those things where it's like it's not like they're doing anything to like get lucky like that. It's just the other team doing stupid shit.
1: Yeah, and I, to be honest, I think I think that's I think it's it's kind of coming from the intensity that Wales play. You you look at how insane they are defensively. I think it must frustrate people, you know, to to be so on top of their game and and so, it, you know, in those advanced positions, so much more than Wales. It must be frustrating, and I guess that kind of leads to mistakes when you lose your head and and um, yeah, Wales have been taking advantage of it for sure.
0: You know what's interesting is what, what I'm looking through my notes um, at the five kind of uh, in contention teams. Mm-hmm. They're all at different stages of a like truly great generation. Like Ireland are kind of in the middle of it but they needed a new coach and they needed to adjust their style. And now they're playing great. France is like at the, like their jewel generation is taking center stage now, beginning to like genuinely dominate matches and win awards and all those kinds of things. And they're still trying and they still manage to like maintain their cohesion and stuff through their culture. Scotland are kind of at the back end of that stage where our golden generation have been around a little bit. And it's now like one of their best, the next couple of years are like their best chances to win it. And then you have England who are at the back end of that where you're moving on from some generational talents into a much, much younger team.
1: Yeah, yeah I think that's, that's what's making the whole competition so interesting, isn't it? Because all those different factors make for completely wild games that you can't predict. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. I think as a Scotland fan, I'm a little bit worried that... Because you'd probably say right now, Hogg and Finn Russell are at their peak, I'd say. Um, they're kind of yeah. at the peak of their powers and they might start declining in the next few years. And I'm a little bit worried that we're not taking advantage of that um, per se. We're kind of, we're performing well. I mean, in all likelihood, the Six Nations will probably get three wins again. We'll probably finish fourth or so. Um, but those two types of players are world class and, and you want your world class players to be to be winning titles, don't you? Um, before they kind of pass the peak. And it does worry me a little bit in that sort of sense.
0: You kind of have to look at it differently, though, as Scotland, because this is like where they had to come from to get to this level is astronomical. And you can see that there are some younger players coming behind, like Adam Hastings and stuff that can play really well as the 10 and 9 and stuff like that. So I, I do think they're, they are really are at their peak, but it's because players like Finn Russell, Stuart Hogg, they've matured. Ali Price has matured. They're into a position where they've seen everything. And they know what's needed, right? When they're younger and they're just unbelievably talented, they don't have the experience necessary. But now they do have that experience and they have the talent and the maturity to make the decisions. Like the way they beat England, Finn Russell probably wouldn't have played like that, you know, five years ago, but his, but the way he took control of that game and just smartly moved the ball, he wasn't taking like these wild risks. He was just doing the play that needed to be done in the moment
1: to succeed. That's very true, actually. Yeah, you're very right in that England game. Finn Russell kind of used all the nouse that probably someone like Marcus Smith is yet to get. Um,
0: yeah, like if you looked at the England-Scotland and Wales, England uh, Scotland match and then the Wales-Scotland match, they're almost like mirrors where uh, Finn Russell took control late on that match against a younger team and took advantage and won the match. And we were just cleaner than England were. They were sloppier. And then in the other, in the other one, Scotland's the sloppier team and Dan Bigger's is the one who took control and kind of commanded the side through the end of the match to win.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's going to make for a very entertaining game this weekend against France, though. What what are your predictions of that, Bryce? Because uh, oh, for me, all, all I've seen, at least in recent years, is us beating France um, in Scotland itself. Um, that we seem to, I don't know, be France's bogey team no matter what kind of form France are in. So um, I've got my fingers crossed that happens again. I, I think it might just because... I don't know, Scotland just seemed to turn up in front of that Murrayfield crowd now. So, yeah, that's my prediction. I think we'll we'll get a sneaky win and and blow the Six Nations wide open, but um, I'm not sure what your opinions are, Bryce.
0: Well, it's kind of of two-sided, right? So, like, we won in France, kind of jammed it in on them when they were in a position to win the Six Nations last year, Um, which means the players that are involved in that, which is all going to be the same France and Scotland side, realize France are gonna be coming in with the attitude of trying to pay back because this is Scotland's best chance in a long time. So France are gonna to want to get that back. Scotland are much better at Murrayfield than they are anywhere else. And then you have the fact that um uh what's his name? Intimac didn't play in that match for France, yeah. but he's in this side. So an Intimac really as good as um you know Dupont and stuff are, Intimac really elevates them to that final stage of like truly great side
1: yeah and also no jamie ritchie and no johnny gray now for Scotland's. yes for sure missing
0: jamie ritchie is gonna be huge yeah,
1: yeah um i'm a bit nervous to like johnny gray going is yes. sad because he's a very good player but we have a couple of very good second rowers whereas jamie ritchie is the one that's harder to replace isn't it Oh, huh, wild it was a hamstring injury
0: i just looked it up i thought it was a knee injury yeah I think you might have to have
1: surgery on it is that, that bad
0: that's rough um, but yeah so no Jamie Ritchie that makes it different um, but you're at home I think it's going to be a very close match because of the way Murrayfield elevates us but France are looking to get payback we're missing some injuries and they have their full lineup of stars available so I would lean towards France winning but because it's Murrayfield we could still pull it out okay so a, a nice on the fence answer there Bryce I'm. I was like, if you're gonna make me choose, I'd say France okay. winning like 20. Yeah, I'm making it or you like so that. we're holding you. or 23-20 or 24-20 something
1: like that. Entertaining game then.
0: Yeah, somewhere close. It comes down to the last possession, and you know France like make a stop or something. Kind of like what happened in Paris, where it literally came down to that extra time and just a 30 phase um, play where Scotland and Minch eventually get it
1: across the line, but it'll be France instead, something like that. Yeah, I, that would put France in the in the the front seat,
0: wouldn't it? For the uh, for the six months, for sure, for sure. But if we can we if but like I said, if like you were saying before, if Scotland beat France, then what you have is Ireland away, and we've never won in the Aviva. Which I looked up this history; they've never won in the Aviva ever. The last time they won was in Croke Park in two thousand ten. So it's the last time they won in Ireland. So it's and before that, they hadn't won in Ireland until 1998 so there was like 12 year period before they went in Croke Park and then we have not won since 2010 so it's another 12 year period hey what do you know
1: and then it's (laughs) uh, where we've never won it's um yeah I I don't like watching us play Ireland because Ireland always seem to out physical us Ireland are a very good rugby team but for some reason we just seem to especially in the forwards lose that battle pretty much every time we play Ireland and uh because I, I think I think we have a slightly better back line, obviously Sexton, Sexton. But I think other than that, they've got quite a few players who are good players, but potentially not as experienced as your likes of Hogg, as your likes of uh, Maitland, as your likes of um, Ali Price, that sort of thing. Um,
0: I'm going to be honest. I think Johnny Sexton isn't as good as any of like the big three for Scotland. I think Stuart Hogg, Finn Russell, and Ali Price are all better than he is. Like I think the Lions tour demonstrated that we played better when those three were on the field than when Johnny Sexton replaced Ali Price. I guess it.
1: I feel like Ireland get that galvanising factor. Joe and Sexton's there, so even if Sexton's not playing well.
0: Yeah, it's that leadership factor he brings for sure. Like that's a huge part of what he brings. But I mean, like pure rugby ability, I would take those three over Johnny
1: Sexton. Yeah, I'm with you, but I feel like I don't know. I've been scarred too much, and Sexton kicks against us to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) to be
0: fair it's not really going to come down to that though it's going to be in the breakdown and without jamie Ritchie, it's going to be very very tough and we struggled against wales in that way too so like i i very much see ireland like i like france is going to be close and it's gonna be fun but i feel like that's going to be the last match where i truly have like genuine hope against a good side like obviously i expect to win against italy but then like France is going to be that last chance, I think, for us to be like have a lot of fun. against one
1: of the good sides because I think we're going to go to the Viv and get drunk. <laughs> well, it'll be really interesting because the the one thing that's always happened when we played Ireland is it's been quite early on in recent years, so there hasn't been it's not been that big pressure match. It's always been kind of Ireland heading in, wanting to get off to a good start or wanting continue wanting to continue a good start. Um, whereas it'll be interesting if. Fingers crossed, it becomes that kind of win for the title type of game. I guess that changes things. I mean, as we talked about in the last, last podcast, that kind of when games get get that big ante, do you know when pressure gets um, gets very high in those sort of games where everything's on the line? Funny things do happen. So it would be interesting to see what like a, a title game would be like, there, rather than just kind of one of these um, side games that have happened over the last few years.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I, I just I expect Ireland to draw us. And so like I'm very excited for France. I'm not excited <laughs> for you. Either.
1: Okay, well we'll make it past France and then we'll see. We'll see how you feel after that.
0: But it, then we gotta talk about England a little bit. Like we said, they're moving on a little, it seems like they're moving on from some generational talents into new generational
1: talents. <laughs> it's um it's interesting to see the transition, isn't it? Um that that Scotland game when I saw the lineup, uh, the lineup, sorry, at, uh, right at the start of the tournament, I think they had, wasn't it, uh, about nine or ten players who had less than ten caps for England. It was it was mad. I've, I've not seen that f- happen with England for a long time, where they kind of. I think literally it's one of their youngest yeah. teams in the last like 30 yeah, it years. must be. It must be. So it's interesting to see whether Eddie Jones can continue that culture reset because he kind of set that culture when england about you know four or five years ago at the top of their game where they were just this winning machine they didn't do it like prettily but they just knew what to do to win every game and it's going to be really interesting to see if yeah eddie jones can continue that with a kind of almost brand new squad
0: yeah and i think england italy france scotland they're all really good examples and wales too of how culture isn't created from the management Although the management influences it, especially around Scotland, with him, uh, with Townsend having kicked Finn Russell out from camp and then allowing him back once he matured a little bit, Um, but it's about the players. It's it's facilitated by management and how they select their players and the way they maintain it. But in the end, the players are the ones who create the culture.
1: Yeah, well, I think if you're going into an organization and you want to change the culture or you're wanting to kind of implement a culture you have to get those kind of key people on board. You, you, It can't just be the coach telling people what to do because it just doesn't work. It's been evidenced not to really work. I mean, you, you look back to, I remember when we were studying, we were given a, a really fascinating paper on the All Blacks and the culture change that happened in the All Blacks to try and get them away from being perennial runners-up to perennial winners. Um, and what they did was they, they kind of let, the players set the culture didn't they 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 brought um team leaders on board and they kind of took the opinions of players on and they set the culture and they set what was required of each player and that just seemed to kind of drive them on uh, and yes yeah, so so just to kind of like just to kind of highlight the importance of of the player kind of buying into those sort of, sort of culture changes is such a big thing really
0: yeah you have to back the key culture developers the key players the key whoever it is whether it's management or like coaches or players because coaches are needed to maintain it and to facilitate it and to enforce the rules the players are happy with right and so like i was thinking about this um i uh, while you're talking is i wrote uh, my paper in on culture about a Purdue basketball team from 2015 ish 2014 ish um where they had really bad culture they had players who were counting their minutes caring only care about how many how well they scored this is basketball, caring only about how many minutes they had, how well they scored, thinking only about, you know, themselves and whether or not they ran. They didn't even care if they lost. Um, but then one player stood up having been blown out, you know, in Michigan. He stood up in the locker room and just said enough of this shit. And if some of you guys don't like what I'm about to say, then you just need to leave at the end of the year. And then what we saw is an exodus, exodus of a bunch of players. And then within two years, they were back in the tournament, back to the sweet 16. And eventually that culture change led to an elite eight, run
1: was there any change of coach in that time or was it um
0: no same coach and one of the keys was uh he learned some lessons in his recruiting process um to where he he focused less on just pure talent and did identify the types of players personalities he wanted um and that was a lesson he learned because when he first showed up at purdue he recruited some highly talented players that was his focus but it also turned out that those guys had great personalities uh great work ethic and that kind of thing um, but then his second generation of players, he struggled in recruiting. And then his third and fourth generation, he's now at like his fourth or fifth generation of recruiting. They're truly good and they're a favorite to win the whole thing.
1: That's interesting. I guess it highlights the the potential of player power, doesn't it? Um, Absolutely. And, and obviously as a coach, it's something you have to harness. And if you don't harness it, you might be struggling.
0: And, it, and a big part of the organizational needs is that you have to understand what each player's role is. Like you got to know who you're... You know team captain is who's going to lead the team and whether or not and then you have to understand that they don't have to be best friends with everyone they just need to command the respect of the room and then you need to know who your social leaders are and stuff like that so you're not just picking them to be captains
1: yeah it's it's do you remember that uh, that kind of it was a mini lecture wasn't it that we got um, from the stand in Scotland cricket captain at the time and he was talking yeah. about trying to build leadership groups within the teams, almost those kind of leadership subgroups. So yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about, yeah. Yeah, so in cricket, he he kind of separated, wasn't it? um, The bowlers and had like a bowling leader, um, I think spin bowlers, sorry, there was a fast bowling leader, there was a batting leader. um, And it was really interesting way to almost try and um, instill that kind of discipline and instill that culture throughout the team by getting those key people on board. but yeah, I think uh, it's a really, really fascinating thing trying to pull those people in because um, I think he mentioned in his talk that there was one player who was a bit troublesome there, who liked about drinking, was a big uh, member of the team, and he was quite offended by not being asked to be a leader, um, because obviously, um, like you mentioned, you want your leaders to be the ones to to enforce that discipline rather than break the discipline. Um, so it can become quite difficult when you do get those big egos and and you get those big people in the team, and it's about how you how you cultivate that buy in from the rest of them, isn't it yeah, uh, but
0: you can use those social leaders and turn them into um like if they understand their role correctly and turn them into like that position right you can turn them into the social leader in the
1: crew I think so, but I think they'd have to have the they'd have to have the same vision as the coach would well, it'd be very
0: different. as long as like, like what that's that's how it would work is you bring him in and you go hey we love that you you know take the team out you get him loose you have fun with him we love that you're friends with everyone um but there are certain restrictions we have to put on that but we want you to still continue to do that right so like in incur- like it's positive reinforcement rather than just punishing or trying to remove his power okay i see so it's kind of the ally yeah. on the team rather than trying to con- control someone okay yeah. okay so it's 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 not that you're trying to limit what he can do, you're just making sure he doesn't um step outside the bounds and that he does it in within the bounds that you want and that your other captains and your other players want in the culture.
1: Yeah, yeah. It sounds like that's kind of similar to what they did in um the Kiwis, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Um with that policy as yep. well.
0: It's exactly what it's like. And I think that's kind of where the whole leadership stuff started was with that all black transition. And now we have those all over the place. And that's not something that really exists in American sports, but I think would be really valuable, especially on like big teams, like American football teams having full on, like we already have a, you know, defensive captain and an offensive captain, a special teams captain. But then you don't have like an understanding truly like of how that connects to the full coaching staff, right? Like there's not like organized meetings where they get the point across.
1: Yeah. I've always been, because obviously, I, uh, with the Rams having quite a few defensive injuries recently, I was hearing a lot about the green dot yeah. in defense and how that was kind of going to players who weren't the captain. Yeah, that's the uh, play called, the which
0: little, is a little yeah. bit different than a captain, because yeah. usually that's like a linebacker or somebody who can make reads on the field.
1: Yeah, so it, it seemed to be that the the kind of like captains on the team don't really have, or at least, a, at least to me as an outsider, an obvious role in kind of um, the organization of the team at the moment.
0: Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, the Green Dot is just the player on the
1: defense who can hear the radio calls from the coaches. Yeah, so we actually, in the Super Bowl, we ended up with the, the Green Dot being Eric Weddle, who would just come out of retirement for the last four games of the playoffs. <laughs> an OG right there. That's pretty mad. But but yeah, like I said, I guess, I can't remember who our defensive captain is, but um, obviously for them not to have the Green Dot is... It'd have to be Aaron Donald. Yeah, it, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting kind of... It's an interesting kind of mix. But um, but yeah, uh, yeah. No, it, it, I just found that very interesting watching the Super Bowl. Anyway, seeing Weddle on the pitch all the time. Did you see he um, tore peck as well? And he played through the whole game with a torn peck, which is mad. <laughs> that is mad.
0: But then as we're talking about this culture and attempting culture change, I think we can talk a little bit about Australian cricket and touch back on a sport we've already talked about and the whole Justin Linker thing debacle because it sounds like we i watched the documentary upon your recommendation about australian cricket uh post uh sandpaper scandal and justin langer is the appointed coach and his role was to literally change the culture get him back into a team that what they said was australia could respect or could believe in Uh, a team that wouldn't go to those lengths and i remember at the end of the documentary feeling like he didn't really change anything any of the
1: culture he just got him to start winning again it's, it's interesting you say that, yeah, because he was brought in um, after big scandals, wasn't it? And to be honest, I think for, for quite a few years, Australians have always been known as kind of the, the brash um, type in cricket, the kind of type who will do anything to win, you know, will push the boundaries. And yeah, he he, he was kind of tasked with trying to make Australia kind of this nice society, the a, a massive part of cricket. Is something called sledging and that's where you kind of um you, you chat during the game to the opposition to try and put them off the game so it can kind of range from trying to distract them with weird stuff to giving them full-on abuse and it can get for americans that's just shit talk, yeah which we do all the time in every sport mm-hmm. It can get quite unpleasant, or especially did uh, get unpleasant for for that Australian team about five or six years ago. You like you had players come out and saying some of the things said to them were just unacceptable. Um, so he was, t- sure. so he was quite a a big challenge, isn't it? Trying to change the whole culture of a team because when you have a team winning, you don't really want to change the culture.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the key part. Is that it's the problem was the culture, like we said, c- culture is player driven. And the players on the Australian team that were causing problems were some of the best players in the side, some of the best players in the world.
1: So, yeah, like you say, you're not going to drop them. And I think it almost did help him, didn't it, having uh, Warner and Smith banned for a bit because it, it, it allowed him to take his, his his role in the dressing room a bit more seriously with, within the team. Um, but, yeah, it was it's a very interesting uh, documentary. Um, for anyone who's not seen it, it's called The Test. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Um, and it's kind of that kind of like fly on the wall type documentary just to kind of follow the way that Australian cricket developed. Um, but yeah, like it's interesting because Langer came in and he took Australia to, to the, best team in the, uh, the best team in the world. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it. They've got some of the best players in the world. And so what was, what's been really interesting to find out over the last six months or so is that the players are unhappy. And, you know, for, for them constantly winning, and they're not winning by small margins. I mean, they just beat England in the Ashes 4-0 out, out of five games. They're absolutely thumping people. And, uh, yeah, to see kind of the players quite disappointed in the coaching it has been very interesting. And I don't know, I, I think for me, it's not something that I expected, um, but... I guess when you do watch that documentary, you can kind of tell that. I think the reason the players said they were disappointed was because Langer, the coach, had been very intense, hadn't he? He kind of almost micromanaged quite a lot, um, and and it seemed to kind of grate the players the wrong way. Is that kind of what, what you got from that documentary?
0: Uh, what I got is that um, they wanted to do things like the sledging and like stuff that they thought was just natural. Australian cricket culture things that they'd grown up seeing and doing and being a part of. And he was like, this isn't like, there's a limit to this. Like it's okay to do it to, but it to a limit. And they didn't like that he ever put a limit on it. It reminds me a lot. And I don't know if you, how you feel about this, but it feels like it's a lot of ego driven stuff among those players where they feel like I'm the reason or we are the reason you're successful, not the coaching, not any of that stuff. And that we could probably do it with any coach.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's the very nature of sport in cricket, isn't it? it? It's such an individual team sport that it's very hard to, very hard to play down the importance of a player to the to, you know, of that individual performance to to wins and to to, to team kind of performances. I think, yeah, I think Langer was onto a bit of a losing game trying to change when there were so many strong heads in that dressing room, um, but I think what's been interesting to find out is. I, I was so the man he made captain recently. Um, Pat Cummins has been one of his most one of the most outspoken players about his coaching. I don't know if you've seen much of that. Bryce. I, he, I saw the one comment.
0: Um, so obviously, all the Australian cricket um, pundits and stuff were roasting the players uh, because they are all friends of mm-hmm. Langer, and he came out with a statement afterwards that I thought was very well made about how uh, like we appreciate everything he did, um, but I'm just protecting my players the
1: way you're protecting him. Yeah, it it was a well made statement, but I, I don't know. I I I just felt something off reading that statement. It it felt like you know, the Pat Cummins has become the the number one test bowler in the world, um, because of Langer. I'd say, Do you know, under the coach, you know, he's 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 created the right environment for him to go out and perform, and now he's become Australian captain, and and within a couple of months, he's speaking out about it. It, it I don't know, for me, it's see something seems a little bit off with the situation and. Probably something we won't find out, but Yeah,
0: we probably won't yeah. find out like any of like the true history of that stuff. Like we won't know any of that stuff about any of the sides. Like you usually never find out that information out. But I think um what's what you're saying though is like um you have to look at it from their perspective, right? Pat Cummins was a great bowler when he stepped into the side and he's elevated and sure he's gotten better since then. But to him, he was great before Langer even stick came in. So he's not going to believe that Langer's and the culture he built would have been the reason for it. And so I think it, I I think it really just comes down to the fact that when you're developing a culture of a side, the players have to be the ones that decide how it works. And regardless of whether or not you think Langer should stay, or you think the players were bad for doing it, I think the best result for cricket, Australia was to let him go so that you could try and push a culture that the players want Right. And that makes them better. And that makes the team better. And, but that's, but that's, and it's one of the problems with having a somewhat niche sport with smaller player pools, right? Like I know Australia, they have bigger player pools in cricket than a lot of, you know, other countries. But when you have a smaller player pool, it means the talent that is there you have to support because if you kick them out and you're losing, but you have one of the best batsmen in the world, but he's a cancer in your locker room. How do
1: you justify that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I think it just goes to show that player power aspect. And like you say, you have to have them on board. Langer came in, tried to change things without kind of their say-so. And, and I think and, that's because the key culture
0: influencers are people like Warner and Smith, and they weren't yeah. a part of the culture change. He tried to make these changes without them, and then he introduced them back into the team and didn't give them captaincy and stuff. And now they're back to being the captain, the vice captains and the influencers in the locker room again, like they were before. And they weren't a part of that change. He didn't push it with them. And so I think it's, it's similar to the issues with England where they just announced they're stopping, they're dropping broad and Anderson. I have no idea if any of the stuff I've read about them is true. It seems like most of it's probably not, but there's probably a reason
1: they're dropping them. Yeah. That's, that's a whole minefield of a topic. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess before we I, I do want to talk about the topic. I just want to finish talking about Langer sure. as well. Um I, I think for me it's it's interesting that the you don't really get too many sports where the players can kind of oust the coach. Um you see it potentially happen in football a little bit where you hear the phrase dropping the tools, do you know? Sure. Uh, I'm thinking of maybe was it Mourinho at Chelsea? Yeah. Um Players during his um, second or third season, just yeah, players like,
0: like Hazard. Willian and Hazard still played, but he was injured most of that season. The problem was that, like Willian, Fabregas, players like that were just like we're done. And then the next yeah, season, but, played some of
1: one of their best seasons ever. Did to win the league, yeah. So I, I think it's it's interesting to see how. How powerful the players are becoming, and like you say, it might be because cricket has that smaller pool of people. It's partially that, uh, yeah.
0: I think I think that's what it comes down to. Especially in, when you're talking about football, a lot of that's contracts and the amount of money you're spending on things and the investment the club sees in it. It's a lot easier to replace one manager than an entire team of players. Uh, it, it, the the cost around that is exponential, right? That's why it's that's why United are really in such trouble. Is that the problem is not their managers, it's the players they've selected and the insane amounts of money they spent on them. The same reason Real Madrid and Barcelona had those issues uh, under Florentino and stuff. like They've spent so much money on players that just aren't worth it and are not that good and have bad attitudes, which is the key part. Which is why, going back to American football, I love Chris Ballard for the Colts so much. Because when he's making draft selections and free agency selections and trade discussions, he is taking into account the player's personality and their influence on the culture. Like, that's his focus. That's why he drafts guys like Jonathan Taylor, because they're high character people.
1: Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think for me to kind of sum up the Australian situation, I think the big thing that irks me is did you hear that Langer was offered a six month contract? So he actually wasn't asked to step down? I didn't hear that. No, so, so the players kind of had decided he wasn't good enough for them, mm-hmm. but they didn't kick him out. <laughs> it, it's a bizarre situation. They basically.
0: That sounds like an him. Australian cricket board issue. Where the cricket board wants to keep him, but the players don't. And so they're stuck in that issue.
1: Well, I, th- I, think, I think that it was basically the, the board asked the players, what do, what do you think of the coach? And the players said, we don't really like him. We want someone else. So they decided to offer him like an insulting contract. And I wonder if it's knowing that he wouldn't accept it and knowing that he'd go. Um, but it, it just potentially, but
0: it's also if they're gonna do that, then you can just get rid of him. Exactly, because in the end, in the end, the result's the same on how people see it. So my opinion is that it's probably the cricket board actually liked Langer and wanted to keep him. And you, when you think about it, the player, the people who have come out in support of Langer are people that would have influence and be the age of that cricket board, right? See, uh, that... so. Yeah, so it just makes me think that they wanted to keep him, the players didn't, and so they were stuck between a rock and a hard
1: place and tried to, to do a middle ground, and that was never going to work. The fascinating aspect now could be he's being uh, tipped as one of the favorites to become the new England manager or England coach. Well, you need a culture change. Maybe that's the way it works. Yeah, um, although I wonder if, uh, if he became in charge, um, Broad and Anderson would be straight back into that team, I assume. It'd be interesting. Maybe he would be interested in doing that. I, mean,
0: I don't know the I don't know the details behind Anderson and Broad. I heard all the kinds of rumors, but Joe Root, who's the captain, doesn't seem to have any issues with him, so i i, I don't get the point of dropping them that much other than maybe you're trying to blood in new talent. Maybe that's the idea, but
1: I don't know the uh, the they, they basically they've tried to explain that it's because they want to get some of their players um they want to try and win abroad uh, as in like winning foreign countries and and they not that's the target, and they think they might be better able to do so by dropping Anderson and Broad. Um, but that's where it becomes bizarre because you look at yeah. Anderson and Broad's record in the West Indies, it's actually really, really good, which is where the next Test Series is, which is the one they got dropped for. It's really good. So you think if both of their records are very good and this st- like they didn't do bad... Maybe it's
0: an articulation issue. Maybe that what they mean is like, yeah, these guys are good away, but we need to bring in players who are going to have the future of England cricket in their hands and get them to learn how to play abroad. So they go to the West Indies where, you know, it's not going to be going to Australia or India, right? It's going to the West Indies. It's not the, you know, toughest places to play. I don't know the history, but obviously the West Indies aren't going to be as good as India or Pakistan or Australia. No, but I think
1: if they'd have come out and said that, I think it would have been easier to accept for both Anderson and Broad and the public. But they haven't. They haven't. Yeah. Had... See, I think that's. See, that's what I'm saying. I think it's an articulation issue. It must be. That's it what must... I think it is. It must be because f- for them to drop these two, especially Jimmy Anderson, when he's bowling better than he ever has at the age of thirty-nine, forty, um, it seems. It seems a weird move, and especially because England haven't appointed a coach yet. Like I mentioned, they could appoint Langer, they could appoint someone else in two months' time, and the first thing they do is recall these bowlers. It seems a little bit of uh, like you say, mixed messages. They don't really know where they want the team to go and where they want the culture to go at the moment. There's no direction. Um, so Maybe that is the issue. Yeah,
0: I mean, that could be it. Is They don't know what direction it is, but there's enough smoke around that kind of around the two of them, uh, around the rumors and all that nonsense that Maybe they feel like, oh, well, here's our opportunity or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, It's just, it's one of those things where I think I, I, a lot of sports have this problem. It happens in golf, which uh, there's a whole thing that we could have a whole other podcast on with the Saudi Golf League stuff that just came out this week around where the people and the players and the uh, people in the positions of power within these sports are often really, really, really bad at articulating what they're thinking. They're not, It's a lot of times they think they're smarter than they are because they're in these positions of power. And so they don't, they just expect people to get it and or they just, or they don't get it, but they think they do. And so they really, really struggle to articulate what their thoughts are. And everyone is just like, what are you talking about? And I think that's potentially what's happening here.
1: Yeah, I I think, What that means is you might have the club pulling in two different directions, mind you. Um, It's all good having a great culture within the dressing room and having a great culture within the coaching staff and and all that, but if you don't have the same culture (laughs) within the the directors and and where, you know, the people who actually decide what happens to the club, you get a situation at United where they've got all the players involved. They could do anything they want, but yet it's a massive kind of... uh, A massive, uh, I was going to use a very strong word there, I probably shouldn't. Um, It's crazy just to see how disjointed that club is. Um, It's a disaster class. Yeah, whereas you can kind of compare, I know I'm picking them out at probably a bad moment because they're in bad form, but you look at the way Brighton have kind of gone from strength to strength across the year and that's because the whole club seems to be pulling in the same direction you know you've got uh, playing staff who want to play the coach's style of play you have got a coach who wants to work with the director of football and the director of football who seems to be making really good signings and you know keeping players happy and that sort of thing uh, that's aligned with the visions of the club it seems yeah it, it, it's it's very easy for for clubs and and for for boards and and countries to separate the two, isn't it? Of the, the player management aspect and the way that the actual kind of board is run. Whereas, yeah, I, I, I think it's a massive problem in, in quite a few different clubs. Like you say, United, a good example, but it, it seems to be happening more and more. Basically, every
0: mid-table club to me is a perfect example of a good culture. Almost every mid-table club because a lot of those mid-table clubs are like, you have mixed in ones like West Ham who have a lot of resources or Everton but then you also have teams like Brighton or like Southampton who have basically roughly the same resources as the lower table or even championship level clubs, but they're perform outperforming that wildly because they've pushed the culture around the manager and the player selection and stuff like that. And they've been smart about that. Like this is in sports, people think culture is driven by the top level, and that's true, but only because they select who the players are. And so whenever you're able to select you know whoever the players are that's how you can build cultures by p- picking players who will build the culture not just the ones who are the most talented it's why I think players clubs like PSG have never won the Champions League it's why city have never well city's not a good example but it's why clubs like PSG have never won the Champions League it's because they have not developed the player culture they just got they just signed unbelievably talented players without developing the culture where on the flip side you have clubs like Chelsea who selected high-level expensive players but in the end, It was the backbone of players that had come through before the even takeover. It was John Terry and Frank Lampard and you know Didier Drogba and Petr Cech, guys who'd been there forever that pushed the culture. It wasn't the new signings. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was the guys who'd been there. And John Terry was like the one who led that, right? He was the captain. He'd been there since he was a kid. And that's why you build the culture from the players. And so the clubs have to select players that fit that culture.
1: Yeah, and I think when you're competing with... 20 clubs that have similar resources, you know, similar levels of talent, you, you need to find ways to kind of eke more out of your club and more out of your performances, and I think that's where culture kind of comes to the fore, doesn't it? You know, you could have the same club with the same players and the same quality of standards, and you can compare two different clubs, and if one has a culture right and one has a culture wrong, then there's only really one winner, isn't it? I think it just goes to show how important it is to kind of have that everyone pulling in the same direction, you know, um, across.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you look at the two Manchester clubs, the perfect example is yeah. that City found the culture they wanted. They had they brought in Pep Guardiola and they brought in the players that they wanted and they brought it in in a culture. And you can look at Liverpool the same way, who spent less money than those clubs, but are significantly better than United and are competitive with City, is that it, they brought players in with the culture in mind. They have the manager and they backed that player driven manager driven culture whereas at united they just purchase whatever shiny thing is happening that season and without any real long-term thought or culture ideas in mind
1: yeah and, and also i think i'll be, be interested to get your opinion on this Bryce, because you see a lot of teams sack their managers quite a lot when things are going wrong and how, how like for example if you were a new manager coming into a situation where you know all the players have been signed by a previous manager, so it might not fit your style. Um, how would you come in and change the culture of, say, a losing side um, when it's players that you haven't selected, a club that might be, you know, uh, confused as to what direction it, it might be going at the boardroom level? Like, what, what would you do to try and kind of turn a club around like that, coming into a situation where, you know, everything's kind of, kind of uh, struggling at the moment? You got to Ted Lasso it, dog.
0: <laughs> you got to find your key. Me- See, that's the thing that, that about Ted Lasso that I think is brilliant is that in that first season, it's a really good example of how to change culture. The reason they don't succeed is because he doesn't understand the sport, but he is unbelievably good at understanding how to develop culture. He finds out who his locker room leaders are, he isolates them and he turns them in, and he turns them into the players he needs them to be, into the leaders they need to be. And then he finds the guys who are talented but maybe not understanding. And he uses those leaders he's developed to pull them in, right? And so he turns the club around by changing the culture, and I select it and identifying the key members of that culture and how to fix it.
1: So say, let's say for example, we've said Manchester United are a bit of a, a mad club at the moment. If you were the manager coming into uh, coming into the uh, the club this summer. Would you try and who would you kinda of target? Like what who would you think that are the key kind of players there to, to get on board? Is it your likes of Ronaldo or is it your likes of maybe the Academy plays if coming? Because you mentioned about Terry and Lampard being kind of key aspects of Chelsea's culture. Would you try and build I think the three three
0: key culture pieces there is David De Gea, Bruno Fernandez, and Marcus Rashford. Okay. And I would turn one of them into the captain, probably Bruno Fernandez and have, uh, or David De Gea, whichever, and then have Ronaldo, you could use Ronaldo in the same way you use a captain because of his experience. And you have you could even make him captain if you wanted. If you needed a short-term solution to develop, a, to do like a quick turnaround, you'd probably select Ronaldo. But if you're looking long-term, it's probably somebody like Marcus Rashford or Bruno Fernandez Because those are your most talented players and they're the smartest players and they're clearly the ones who understand the culture uh, United better than the others. You, like, you can't rely on Paul Pogba. You can't rely on Harry Maguire. You can't rely on anyone else because those guys don't seem to get it. But Bruno Fernandez, David Haya, Mark Strashford do. Okay, so that is really, that's, that's very interesting, actually. And like I said, if you want a short term, quick culture change, it's, you pick Ronaldo because who else is anyone going to look up to but one of the greatest
1: players to have ever played the game? Did you not see? um, There was a story in the papers about a month ago, I think it was or so, and it said Ronaldo's getting frustrated because some of the younger people in the side weren't actually listening to him. I think, you know, he was giving them... Yeah, and that's
0: the manager and the club have to give him the influence and the power to make people listen to him. So make him kind of one of
1: the leaders, basically.
0: It's a bit like what's happening with the Lakers and LeBron James. When he was in Cleveland, he basically selected, he basically was laid. It was a joke, La GM, where he basically selected who he wanted. And he worked with the GM and stuff like that to develop the team. And in the lake and with the L.A., he realized quickly in this last during the season that Russell Westbrook and some of these other guys who they brought in in the offseason are not going to cut it. And that first of all, there were tons of mistakes the Lakers made in the off season that he didn't really have that weren't his choice, but say Anthony Davis's or whoever's. And then LeBron realized like midway through the season, like we're going to need to make some changes and the Lakers didn't listen. They didn't listen to the greatest player they've ever played. like, And I think United's in that same boat where they're just not doing what they need to do to empower him. Because like, that's the key. You have all these players who've been there forever. Empower the one, even if he's new, he's been here before. He understands the culture better
1: than any of these players. He played with Fergie. Empower him. Mm, that's, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I heard something when they were playing Leeds of the day. he was. Um, he played that exact same fixture 18 years ago.
0: Yeah. And like if I'm Ralph Ragnick, one of the things I do is I empower him. But I also, even when you don't select him, bring him as like a like readjust his contract. So he's like a player assistant coach or something like that so that he can be on the bench even when you
1: don't aren't going to select him. Yeah. Or even if he's injured, that type. Yeah. Because I guess. Yeah. You saw him play that role a bit at Portugal, didn't you? Um, Yeah. During the Euros when he got injured, he was almost half coaching the team, wasn't he? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's partially because Santa uh, Santos, right?
0: That's the manager. I don't remember his name. He's not that great. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. A- he, he's basically survived on a
1: golden generation <laughs> carrying him. Yeah, they got they got the euros through uh, the mighty Edda. So,
0: but yeah, it's it's all about when you're developing culture. When you're looking at Australia cricket, you're looking at one of these rugby teams. It's about the players. It's about empowering the players you want. And one of the things I was thinking about is uh, going back to rugby is the Scotland issue where they kicked Finn Russell out a few three is it three years ago. Uh, They kicked him out of the side in the middle of the Six Nations and didn't let him back till later. And what was so interesting about that is while, sure, uh, it was Townsend's decision in the end, every player in the side pretty much backed the decision, which meant that Finn was outside the culture and he had to adapt to get back in. And that's like a huge part of that is once you establish these rules, you have to make sure that the players are will abide by your decisions and punishments and things like that when somebody steps outside of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example to kind of finish on, because you're talking about how no one's really above... Finn, ish on. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> talking about how no one's really above the rules um, and above kind of uh, that kind of team police. And yeah, I, I read the same thing that I think it was the likes of Ali Price and stuff fully fully agreed with the decision um I think yeah and obviously the most out. important one being Stuart hogg and Jamie Ritchie and stuff like that yeah I think that they were the ones that actually called him out for it because it was the didn't he go out yeah. you know something when he shouldn't have been or something like that
0: yeah he like I think what happened is he went out the night before then came into practice like hungover or something and then when Townsend called him out they
1: got into like a proper row over it yeah and the, and the players side of the coach yeah so it goes to show yeah that that if you get the right players on board um you can kind of succeed in that sort of sense because it was a big thing wasn't it getting rid of F- Finn russell for that whole six nations
0: um i was so sad because Russell russell's my favorite player and <laughs> i wasn't gonna get to watch him as much he's he's great to watch to be fair and that was when we were there so we didn't get to watch him it was yeah. really depressing the thing is though it kind of made the team better right it made Ali price him a more playmaker it developed some of the other playmakers and now we have adam hastings as a 10 who can come in you got ben white now as a nine like it seems like some things are starting to develop for the long term in the, in Scotland and that's kind of nice.
1: It's it's sort of in a weird way it brought the team closer, didn't it when Finn Russell went because it was Yeah. The, yes, you you kind of lost your playmaker, but also you know they were proud of what they cultivated and created at that point. Um and it seemed to kind of make him kind of step up a bit more as as that kind of collective. Um so yeah, I think they definitely are reaping the rewards from from that like you say Ali Price managed to kind of put himself i mean well after that he ended up um end up in the lines didn't he so um it, it's 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 going to be interesting to see for example when finn russell goes in a few years time uh whether someone like hastings can step up in his place because he's already
0: you know you could look at the you could look at ali price finn russell and like um Stuart hogg as a really good example of the differences in player development too where uh finn russell was, you know, getting thinking about quitting rugby altogether. Um, but then he now he's one of the best players in the world. Stuart Hogg was like the born and blooded in, he's gonna be great player from the start. And you have Ali Price who was kind of looked like he was gonna be a pretty average player for a long time, but now has really elevated himself post um um what's his name? Gregor. Not Gregor. Yeah, yeah, Gregor Townsend. Krieg. Oh no, Craig Laidlaw. Oh of course. Uh, post Craig Raidlaw he's really established himself and really been able to elevate himself to like a higher level than like you'd expected him to be at. And now he's like truly one of the best nines. And like, so it's just really interesting. You look at the three of them and see three different
1: versions of player development, but they get roughly to the same level. Yeah. Same level. And obviously all pulling in the same direction as well. Like you look at, how, yeah. you look at Scotland play in the field. They seem to be having a lot of fun as well. Do you know, there's a lot of smiles always. Um, and yeah, I guess it's no, no mean feat to kind of get, those three type, different types of players all kind of playing together for your team. is no mean for you at all.
0: So, yeah, there it is. Culture's player-driven, uh, but management has to facilitate it. That's what we learned today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely learned that. And and also learned that Justin Langer could be England's next hero, which could be uh, very interesting.
0: It was a lot of fun to talk about culture. That was a nice break. It was a nice break. Um, I don't know what we're going to talk about next. Maybe college basketball? Yeah, well, maybe you can educate me on, um, on March Madness. And, what, and that you could probably just do a coin flip for your entire bracket <laughs> and do better than me the, with knowledge.
1: Yeah. I tell you what, if I can beat you in predictions, I'll be very, very pleased with myself.
0: Don't be surprised. It happens all the time. <laughs> That'll probably
1: what we'll do is college
0: basketball, and I'll have to yeah, educate you. Yeah. I can, I can learn, a bit.
1: learn a bit about basketball and maybe
0: myself. <laughs> yeah, learn about yourself. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: See ya.